0: Well, this morning we're going to look at one of the most popular chapters in the Bible. And the reason it's one of the most popular chapters in the Bible is because it covers one of the most popular subject matters, which is love. Now a lot of people just jump straight into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, they see it, this is the love chapter, if we want to learn about love we go there, but but oftentimes what they miss is the context surrounding it, the, the verses and chapters before and the verses and chapters after, and the context as we've seen as we're studying through 1 Corinthians is spiritual gifts. Uh, chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts, and we're actually going to see love is in light of spiritual gifts here in chapter 13, and chapter 14 is also all about spiritual gifts, and we noted that the purpose of, of these three chapters isn't just to give us kind of the details of uh, what spiritual gifts there are and what they mean, but more specifically, you know, Paul is revealing to us eight different vital principles that we need to understand when it comes to spiritual gifts. And in chapter twelve, we we looked at the first five vital principles that Paul shares with us. At first. We need to judge if the person is glorifying, testifying, and exalting Jesus and how they exercise their gifts. Second, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives spiritual gifts and he gives them as he chooses and he wills. Third, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to profit the church. Fourth, the body of Christ not only functions, uh, only functions properly when all spiritual gifts are unified together and we understand that the body needs more than just we can offer. And fifth, Each one of our gifts is necessary for the body of Christ to function as God has designed it to. Now at the end of chapter 12, you know, as he's been going through all these different spiritual gifts, Paul says this, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So I've been sharing with you about all these spiritual gifts and the principles surrounding these spiritual gifts, but there's a more excellent way, and the more excellent way is the way of love, and that is what we're going to be focusing on this morning, and that is the six Vital principle that Paul is going to share with us, the importance of love in using spiritual gifts. So let's see what Paul has to say about this vital principle of love, starting in chapter 13, verse 1, says this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Notice that Paul repeats a phrase in these three verses, three different times that phrase is, but have not love. He wants us to recognize that, you know, he has, you can have spiritual gifts, you can have works for God, but if you don't have love, if that's not connected with that, then those things become useless to us and to others. The first thing that Paul brings up is the the gift of tongues and how we use our words. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You see, you and I, we could be the greatest speaker in the world. We could have the gift of tongues. We could speak even, you know, like angelic beings. But if we don't have love, we're told we're just a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Sounding brass and clanging cymbals are just annoying noises. And that's what Paul is saying. When you speak without love, your words just become an annoying noise to those that are listening to your unloving words words. Now all of us are guilty of saying things that are unloving and you know when our recipient hears that, you know what they're ultimately hearing is is just unloving noise that's coming our way. You know, when I first got married, I was very sarcastic and, you know, I would say a lot of sarcastic things to Jenny and, and I thought that was really clever and funny and and for some reason she didn't think that. You know, she thought it was very unloving and it took me a while to realize because it was unloving and and so as I thought I'm being so funny, I'm being so clever, all she heard was, you know, this is an annoying noise. You know, this is something that is not doing anything to benefit our relationship. And, you know, remember the purpose of spiritual gift is to profit the church. And so many of the spiritual gifts use our words. The gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, the list goes on and on. But yet, when we are speaking without love, even though we're saying, oh, we're using this great gift, all it becomes is just this annoying noise that doesn't profit anyone, and we miss the purpose of why these gifts exist to begin with. He goes on to say in verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You know, here Paul lists three of some of the most sought after things that the Corinthians were looking for and in our world today that people are wanting as well. Spiritual gifts, understanding, and Faith, And notice he says, you know, we could have those things. You could, you know, have this spiritual gift like prophecy. You could have such amazing understanding that you have all understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And you could have such powerful faith that you could remove mountains. But if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. Now, think about that, because the Corinthian believers, and I'm sure people today would think, man, if I had this, if I had these amazing spiritual gifts, if I had this amazing understanding of God and this faith in God, man, that would profit me a lot. I would be so amazing. I'd be this amazing, super spiritual Christian. And Paul's saying, if there's no love, it doesn't profit you anything, and it doesn't profit anyone else anything either. You would be nothing. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It's not just spiritual gifts that need to be connected with love. It's also our works for God. You, know, you could be the most giving person there is. You could actually give everything you have to feed the poor, all your possessions, all your income, you know, and you say, here, I'm giving it away. I'm giving it to those in need. Or you could give something even more valuable. Paul says you could give your life. He's speaking of as a martyr, give your life in sacrifice for your belief in Jesus Christ. But if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. Now, think of that. I mean, as believers, we would think, man, if I was that giving, if I gave everything I had to people who were in need, or, or if I gave my life in sacrifice to Jesus, surely that would profit me a lot, especially in the eyes of God. And Paul is saying, if it's not connected with love, if it's not motivated by love, then no, it won't. It profits you nothing to do that if love is not a part of it. See, Paul wants us to understand something very important. Love is essential for all these things. It's the foundation. It what brings value to spiritual gifts. It what brings value to the works that we do for God. It's the thing that should motivate us to do it. See, the goal is to profit others. But the bottom line is, if I don't have love, then why am I going to want to profit anybody? It's love for people, love for God that brings us to that place that we want to use spiritual gifts for the proper purpose, which is to profit others. And so without love. These gifts. These works. They become worthless and useless. Now don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's not saying it's love versus spiritual gifts we must choose love and forget spiritual gifts that's not what he's saying love and spiritual gifts are not against one another they work for each other they work together they're they're essential they need to be connected to one another that's what he's trying to reveal to us you can't use spiritual gifts without love because then they don't work the way that God intended them to So when they're connected with love, they're amazing and a huge blessing with people. And when they're not connected to love, then they don't profit anybody. They're useless. They're nothing. And so this is a very important thing for us to grasp. A third grade science teacher asked one of her students to describe salt. And he struggled for a few minutes to to give a description. Then he finally said, salt is what makes French fries taste bad when you don't sprinkle it on. You know, many foods that taste good are bad when they're missing a key ingredient like salt. Uh, When we lived in in Scotland, they had very bland food and it needed lots of spice. And so what could have been really good ended up being quite bad because it was missing key ingredients. I mean, imagine pizza without cheese or tacos without meat or, or pancakes without syrup. You know, you take out a key ingredient and what could be great now becomes bad. In the same way, you know, you have spiritual gifts, which are great and they're meant to be profitable. But when you take out the key ingredient of love, what? Is meant to be great ends up being bad because love is missing from the equation. So Paul starts this chapter revealing to us the necessity of love when it comes to spiritual gifts. And now he's going to spend the next few chapters helping us understand what love is and what love is not. So he's saying, hey, love's important, but if you don't know what it is and what it looks like, then you're not going to be able to actually put it into practice. And so let's see what he reveals to us, verses 4 through 7. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I want you to notice here that Paul describes love with verbs rather than Adjectives. He's focusing on what love does and what love doesn't do. He wants us to see love in action. It's not just kind of a technical definition that we can understand intellectually but not know how to practically use. He wants it to be very practical. This is what love looks like in action and this is what love doesn't look like in action. And so as he shares these things with us, he's basically giving us the love test. And we're going to take that together this morning. We're going to have a love test this morning because as We look at eight things that love is not, we're going to compare that to our life and see, am I doing that? If you are, that's unloving. And then we're going to look at eight things that love is, and we're going to compare that to our life, and we're going to say, Am I doing that? And if you're not doing that, then that's unloving and so hopefully as we look at this we get a better grasp of love but more importantly we can kind of see in our own life where are we falling short where do we need to grow where do we need God to help us become more loving so I want to start with what love is not and then we're going to look at what love is the first thing Paul tells us love is not is love does not envy envy is the resentful or unhappy feeling of wanting what someone else has You know, when I was 16 years old, you know, I was desperate for a car, but I came to the realization very quick that the only way I was getting one is if I bought one myself. And, you know, at school, there was a a guy who just turned 16, and his parents bought him a brand new BMW, and, you know, he would tell us about how great it was, how all the ladies loved it, and and I was envious of this car, and I remember one day to myself and a few of my friends, you know, he just basically says, oh, it must stink being poor and not having a car, and that probably wasn't the smartest thing for him to say to us, because we decided, you know what, okay, fine. So we went and we wrapped his BMW in plastic wrap, and then we took duct tape and put it around the plastic wrap, and then we put shaving cream on that, because it's really hard to peel off duct tape when there's shaving cream all over it. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is, you know, envy is not loving, and it leads to unloving actions, like doing that to someone's BMW. But, you know, it's, you know, we need to demonstrate love. And so if you struggle with envy, that's not loving. And you need to ask the Lord, hey, help me to overcome this because it's hindering me from demonstrating love the way that God wants us to. The second thing Paul tells us love is not, is love does not parade itself. To parade oneself means to put yourself on display in front of others, basically to show off. When I played sports in high school, I'd love to parade myself. I'd love to show off. In practice, I didn't care because there was no one watching. But game time came, the crowds were there, you know, and that's when I wanted to show off. I wanted people to think I was so great. And, you know, that's not loving. That's just selfish. And too often, you know, within relationships, we want to put ourselves on display at the cost of others. And that is something that damages relationships because it is not loving. The truth is always, or the love will always be far more impressed with our own unworthiness than our own merit. So if you struggle with boasting about yourself, putting yourself on display, showing off, then ask the Lord to help you with that because that is not a loving trait. The third thing Paul tells us love is not, is love is not puffed up. To be puffed up means to be big-headed, to be prideful, to think highly of oneself. I'm sure all of us are, are guilty of this one. I know I've struggled a lot in my life with pride, but I've come to realize that it's one of the most damaging things to a loving relationship. Humility is what fuels love, and pride is what destroys it. Love does not get big-headed, it does not get proud. And so if you struggle with pride. It's another thing to ask God to help you to overcome because it's a huge hindrance to demonstrating love to others. The fourth thing Paul tells us love is not is love does not behave rudely. Rudely means to act unbecomingly, to be ill-mannered or rude, either in your words or in your actions. And, you know, being rude to someone, even that you feel deserves it or has been rude to you first, is still unloving. It's still something that we shouldn't be doing, and it's something that definitely hurts relationships that you want to be loving. And so if you're ill-mannered, you're rude in your words and your actions... Pray for God to help you overcome that because it's a hindrance to your love. The fifth thing that Paul tells us love is not is love does not seek its own. Seek its own means to seek after or strive for or crave for things only for yourself. It's a very selfish focus it's all about me and what I want and I'm sure that you have come to a recognition if it's only about you then the only person that enjoys being with you is you uh, and so being all about me destroys relationships people don't want to be around someone who only cares about themselves and don't care about the people they're with and so this is a huge problem selfishness is a huge problem uh, when it comes to loving relationships and so we got to be very careful with that and sometimes we can think- Think we're doing well, you know. I know that before I got married, I thought, you know, I kind of got this selfish thing down, you know, in the sense of I'm overcoming it. Uh, and then I get married and realize, whoa, I'm way more selfish than I thought I was. And then after being married for four years, I thought, okay, I'm doing well now. And then I have two girls and realize, oh, I still got a lot of areas of selfishness that I need to work on, and it's a huge hindrance to loving relationships. So if you struggle with it all being about you and being selfish, another thing to pray about because it's hindering the way in which you demonstrate love to others. The sixth thing Paul tells us love is not, it's just not provoked. Provoked means to make angry, to exasperate, to cause irritation. You know, some people, as we would say, are easily provoked. You know, anything that you say or do, it just gets them super angry or mad. And that is not good if you want to have a, a loving relationship. You shouldn't be easily provoked. Love doesn't get provoked. It's something that you're willing to not allow to happen. And so if you struggle with being provoked, maybe you have that long fuse. It takes a while, but you still explode, or, or it's that quick fuse. Either way, that's still something you want to pray that God would help you to overcome. The seventh thing that Paul tells us love is not is love thinks no evil. You know, this is more accurately translated love does not dwell on or keep a record of the evil things done to it. The NIV translates it um, keeps no record of wrong. So love doesn't store up, it doesn't hold on to all the, the sinful things, the evil things, the hurtful things that people have said, and there are those who do that. I mean, everything you say, they keep a record of it, they don't forget it, and they kind of hold on to that, and that really damages relationships when you're not willing to forgive and move on, and really just say, I'm not going to dwell on and hold on to, you got to be able to forgive. you got to be able to release those things and not cling to them. And this is a big reason relationships fail. Uh, And so once again, if you want to have a loving relationship, this is one of those areas you got to pray that God would help you overcome. The eighth thing Paul tells us love is not, is love does not rejoice in iniquity. Rejoicing in iniquity means to rejoice or be glad when something unjust or unrighteous happens to someone else. Love isn't glad when something unjust or unrighteous happens to someone else. You know, and if you're if you're all pleased when, when you see that in someone else, and that happens, you know, we have those people we don't like, and something happens to them that's not just or whatever, and we're kind of pleased with it. <laughs> yeah, good, I don't like them. I'm glad that they're going through that. That's not love. It shows that you don't love them because you're not happy about that. You don't take joy in that when you truly do love someone. And you can see that maybe with your kids. Something unjust happens, you know, you're ready to, to fight for them. You're like, you know, this isn't going to you know, fly. I'm, I'm super upset with the reality of my kid has not been treated justly, and it shows your love for them. And so, here are eight things that love is not it doesn't envy, it doesn't parade itself, it's not puffed up, doesn't behave rudely, doesn't seek its own, isn't provoked, thinks no evil, and does not rejoice in iniquity. So, how are you doing so far in your love test? How many of these things are evident in your life? Just be real with yourself. It's something that, look, hey, if you have these things, then this is a time today to seek the Lord and ask him to help you change because this isn't loving. If these things are in your life, this is clearly from Scripture, not something that God wants in our life. So that's what love isn't. Let's continue our test by looking at what love is. The first thing Paul tells us love is is love suffers long. Suffering long means to persevere patiently, to endure offenses and troubles for a long time. Love is willing to suffer for a long time. It's willing to patiently endure the offenses of others for a while. And you can tell who you love more based on that. You know, everybody has people in their life that do things that are difficult, that say things that are hurtful. And how much you're willing to suffer through that, how long you're willing to go through that, demonstrates the depth of your love for those people. You see, I love my girls, but, you know, there are things, and I'm sure every one of you who have kids, there are things that your kids do that test your patience, that test your long-suffering But you know what? Because I love them, I'm willing to suffer along with some of the things that they do. Now, when I see those same things in other people's kids... I'm not as willing to suffer long because I don't love those kids the same way. Uh, And so because my kids do it and I love them more, I'm more patient. I'm more long-suffering because there's more love there. And this is the reality of what this is telling us. If you see that attribute in your life, that's a demonstration of love. And if you're not patient, it shows that you're not loving in that way. And so if you struggle with not suffering long with people, ask God to help you with that so you can love more efficiently. The second thing Paul tells us love is, is love's kind. To be kind means to be kind-hearted, compassionate, caring. You know, love is kind towards others. It's compassionate. It demonstrates that in words and in actions. Mark Twain called kindness a language that the deaf can hear and the blind can read. A woman received a brand new car from her husband, and two days later she gets in a car accident. Now she's freaking out, you know, how is she ever going to go home and face her husband after she just totaled the car that he just bought her two days earlier? And if she goes into the glove compartment to get out the insurance documents to show the person she got in an accident with, there's a note there in the car for her. And it says, in case of an accident, remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. If you really love someone, you're going to demonstrate kindness in words, kindness in action. It's going to be something that they really receive from you. And so if you struggle with that, you struggle with being kind, that's another uh, thing for you to recognize that's not loving. And so ask God to help you change in that area. The third thing Paul tells us love is, is love rejoices in the truth. Rejoices in the truth means to rejoice or be glad in things that are true or things the way that they truly are. You know, I'm grateful for the fact that love takes joy in people the way they truly are. I read a survey uh, recently on relationships and they went out and they asked people, you know, what's the most important thing to you in a relationship? And one of the top answers was to be loved the way I am. That's what people want. You know, they don't want, you know, cause so often we put on this mask, you know, because we're, we're afraid that if we let people see what we're really like, they won't love us anymore. And it's like, I just want someone to love me with all my faults, with all my failures, just love me for who I am. That's often what people are, are looking for. And this is what we see here with this word of, you know, hey, loving people just, the way they are, you know, having that that true love for them. And um, I'm blessed. Jenny loves me the way that I am. She doesn't say, well, if you do this, this and this and change this and that, then I'll love you. No. William Barclay, a great pastor and commentator, said this about rejoicing in the truth. Christian love has no wish to veil the truth. It is brave enough to face the truth. It has nothing to conceal. And so is glad when the truth prevails. So if you struggle with not being able to rejoice in truth, then here's another one of the things that you want to ask God to help you to grow in. The fourth thing Paul tells us love is, is love bears all things. Now this Greek word translated bears means to cover or conceal the errors or faults of others. Love covers the faults and sins of others. It does not seek to reveal them. And you can totally see who loves you or not when you fail. You know, there are those when you fail who want to tell everybody about your failure, want to spread gossip to everyone, and you know, that isn't loving. You know, what love desires to do is to, to cover not to reveal. And, you know, the Bible says love covers a a multitude of sin. It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't address sin with people or don't, you know, share things with them, but it's not that you, we know biblically, if someone sins, you go personally to them alone and deal with that. You don't go sharing it with everybody and say, I want everybody to know what so-and-so did. That is not loving. So if you struggle with not being able to cover the faults of others, Ask the Lord to help you to do that. The fifth thing that Paul tells us love is, is love believes all things. It believes or thinks the best of people. This isn't saying that we need to be gullible and and not wise and just believe anything that anyone ever tells us. This is speaking about, you know, you're going to think and you're going to assume the best in people, not think and assume the worst. And too often, that's what we do, and you can see who you love and who you don't. The ones that you love, you're usually assuming and thinking the best in what they say and what they do towards you, and the people that you don't love, you usually assume uh, the worst, and you think everything that they're doing is a slight against you, is something that because they don't like you, Uh, and so love thinks and assumes the best in people. And this is something that is hard to do with certain individuals, for sure, but We're called to demonstrate this love. And so if you struggle with that, ask the Lord to help you overcome it. The sixth thing Paul tells us love is, is love hopes all things. Hope means a confident expectation of something coming that is good. You know, many people are pessimistic. You would say that they are a cup half empty type of individual, but that's not really a a loving trait because love expects good things to happen. It's not pessimistic. It's not always negative looking on the the negative side of things. Love hopes for the best, not for the worst. It gives people the, the benefit of the doubt. You know, I heard a story of a dog who stayed in an airport uh, in a large city for over three years waiting for his master's return and employees there, they fed him, they gave him water, but he wouldn't leave. He stayed in the spot that the master left, hoping his master was one day going to come and reunite with him and just this loyalty and this hope that is in this dog. And if a dog can do that for its master, you know, how much more should we have that kind of love for the people in our lives that we claim to love? So if you struggle with not being able to hope for the best, there's another thing you should ask God to help you overcome. The seventh thing that Paul tells us love is, is love endures all things. Endures means to remain, persevere, and endure whatever comes your way. Love doesn't flee when things get hard. And love doesn't abandon when things are are, are difficult, You know, when I was a pastor in Scotland, I canceled a man who wanted to divorce his wife. And, you know, he told me his marriage was just too hard and, you know, he wanted to get out of it. And so I asked him, you know, do you love your wife? Do you love your kids? And he said, oh, yes, absolutely. So I took him here to First Corinthians and I had him read it. And I asked him again, do you love your wife and do you love your kids? And he said, not like it says here. He understood that. He understood there was a difference in what he was claiming to be love and what true love is. Because love doesn't walk away when things get difficult. Love doesn't abandon when things are hard. So if you're struggling with that, ask the Lord to help you overcome it. The eighth and final thing Paul tells us love is, is love never fails. This word fails means to fall short, to fall from a thing, to fall away, to fail. Fail. Love never falls short. It never fails. It's something that that stands strong. It's always there when you need it. You know, when you truly love someone, you're there for them. Even when they're stupid and foolish and do, you know, things that, you know, you're just thinking, oh, why'd you do that again? But you love them. You know, for those of you who have kids and maybe wayward kids, you, you know, you're still willing to receive them back because of your love for them, just like the loving father received the prodigal son back. Why? Because he loved him. And you're willing to do that because love never fails. So how are you doing on your love test after looking at what love is? You got to see some of the areas of your life that you shouldn't have. And now you see, are any of these eight things in my life? Am I demonstrating them? Is it seen in my actions, in my words? You know, I think a great way to test where you're at with these eight different things love is and is not is to place your name where the word love exists and then See how that sounds. So I want you to take a second, and I want you just to to put your name there where the word love is. For example, I would say Matthew suffers long, Matthew doesn't envy, and just go down the list in your mind, just kind of, how does it sound? How does it sound when you have your name there? So just take a moment uh, and do that. Now, as you're putting your name there, does it sound like it fits? Or does it sound totally ridiculous? And as you look at each one, that's a good test. If it sounds like it fits, that means you're doing well in that area of love. And if it's like, oh, that doesn't fit at all. That that just sounds so silly with my name in front of it because that's completely not me. Well, there's an area where you need to ask God to help you grow in love. You know, we could place another name in there and it would make complete sense because of who this person is. You put Jesus' name in there. Jesus is love. And notice how it sounds. Jesus suffers long. Jesus is kind. Jesus rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never fails. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus doesn't parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity. And this is one of the things that we love Jesus so much because he is love and because all these things are true about him. But here's the reality. As you and I grow to become more like Jesus, our name in front of these things should fit better. As we become more like Jesus who is love, then we should be changed to be more loving people. And all of a sudden, what seemed to be so ridiculous when your name was there now seems to start to fit because of what you're being changed to become like. Now, when we started this list, I noted the descriptions are love in action words. You see, biblical love is an action that you choose Not a feeling that all of a sudden causes you to love. You know, in Greek we have several different words translated in English, love. There's one that we have here, agape, and it's all about action that's really not associated with feelings. And every other one is feelings. It's relationships that you have. You know, uh, eros is an erotic relationship with a spouse. You know, there's a feeling, obviously. um, Phileo, another feeling. They're all about feelings that bring you to a place of love. But here, it's not about that. And I think that's so important for us because we so often associate love with a feeling. Well, I just don't have a feeling for this person. I don't have a feeling, you know, to profit others, to benefit others, to do something for others, so I'm not going to. It's not about a feeling. It's about choosing to do something even when you don't feel like it and even when you don't feel like they deserve it, loving the unlovable. John 15, 13, Jesus tells us, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friend. Jesus is giving what the greatest demonstration of love is. And notice he doesn't say the greatest demonstration of love is to have overwhelming feelings of love for people. Wow, that is the most amazing love there is. No, he doesn't say anything about feelings. The greatest demonstration of love is to give your life, to make a choice. Make a choice to give your life and act on it for someone else. Now, choosing to love when you don't feel like it, choosing to love unlovable people, it's one of the most difficult things that we're told to do scripturally. Love your enemies. I mean, we hear things like that and we recognize how hard that is. And something important that I've discovered over the years as I've been walking with Jesus is in order to love like Jesus loves you, you need to be a lover of Jesus. In order to love like Jesus, you need to be a lover of Jesus. If you want to become like Jesus who is love, you got to spend time with him. you got to invest in your relationship with him. And the natural byproduct of that is you are going to start to become someone who loves more. There's no way to grow in love while neglecting the God of love. While neglecting a relationship with him. You might look at this and think, I got a lot of work to do. Man, what am I going to do? Well, tomorrow morning I'm just going to be like, I'm going to be more long-suffering. I'm going to be more this and that. That's not going to work. The best thing you can do is forget saying that and go spend time with Jesus. Because the natural byproduct of that is you're going to start to become more loving. So Paul has revealed to us that without love, our spiritual gifts are nothing. And now he tells us what love is and what love isn't. And now he's going to conclude this chapter revealing a little more about why love is greater than spiritual gifts. Remember, he started with, I'll show you a more excellent way, the way of love. Let's notice what he says here. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, we looked at verses 8 through 10 when we first started this section on spiritual gifts. And the reason that we looked at that is because there are those who claim that there is a portion of the gifts, of spiritual gifts, that are not for today. And they use, you know, verses 8 through 10 to try to to back that up. But, you know, these verses are saying there's going to come a time when prophecies and tongues and knowledge, which are all spiritual gifts, they're going to cease. And and verse 10 tells us that they're going to cease when that which is perfect has come. And so the question is, you know, what is that which is perfect? Because that's going to be what ceases these spiritual gifts. And as we noted when we started uh, our study with spiritual gifts, those who claim that, hey, gifts Certain gifts are no longer for today. They believe that that which is perfect is referring to the completion of the New Testament. And so that now that we have that, that which is perfect, the completion of the New Testament has come. And so we no longer need uh, a certain portion of spiritual gifts. But, you know, the majority of commentators agree that that which is perfect is not speaking about the completion of the New Testament. It's speaking about when you and I are with Jesus in heaven. And we're going to see in verses 11 and 12 why that's even more clear. But Paul is revealing that love never fails. That's the last thing he says as he gives the eight things that love is, and then he goes right into, but spiritual gifts will. Love is going to be eternal, but spiritual gifts have an end. And so, you know, this is something that he's kind of bringing out of why love is superior to spiritual gifts. They're going to last For all eternity, but spiritual gifts, they're only for this life. For here and now on this earth, we need spiritual gifts. But guess what? When we get to heaven, we're not going to need them anymore. We're not going to need prophecy because we can speak to God directly. We're not going to need tongues because God can speak uh, directly, or we can speak to God. Prophecy, he can speak to us We're not going to need faith because we're going to be in God's presence. We're not going to need the gift of healing because we're going to have these new glorified bodies that aren't going to need it. I mean, these gifts that we have now for this life are essential in this life, but they will not be needed when we get into heaven. Now, what Paul shares in verses 11 and 12, I think makes it very clear he's speaking of heaven, not the completion of the New Testament. He gives two illustrations to help make his point. Notice what he says. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So the first illustration that Paul uses here is of a child versus an adult. When you're a child, you speak like a child, you understand like a child, you act like a child, you know, there's just that reality, and there's nothing wrong with that because you're in that childlike state, but then when you become adults, things change. You speak differently, you act differently, you know, there should be an understanding that's greater, that there's a difference that takes place, that childlike state doesn't last forever, Now, Paul is using this illustration to help us see we need spiritual gifts here in this life, but we're not going to need them in the life to come, which is in heaven. Because our life here on this earth is like a child that uses different spiritual gifts, but when we go to heaven, our life's going to change, like the change from a child to an adult. We're not going to need them anymore. There's going to be this significant change that takes place. So the first illustration is of a child versus an adult. The second one's even more clear. It's an illustration of seeing and knowing something dimly or in part versus seeing and knowing something clearly and in full. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Speaking of now, like here on this earth, we see in a mirror dimly, see Jesus dimly. But then, speaking of heaven, face to face, we're going to see Jesus very clearly because we're going to see him face-to-face. Face. Now, it's interesting because mirrors in that time were not as good as reflecting a clear image as today. Today, we have very clear images in our mirrors, but they didn't have the technology that we have today. They just used polished brass or metal uh, to for their mirror, and so it wasn't a completely clear image. It, you know, it was distorted a little bit, and so, you know, in using that, they would have recognized, yeah, the mirrors that we have don't really look quite like we do, Uh, and so Paul is saying, hey, you know, there's, we're going to see dimly, kind of like we look in a mirror here of polished brass, here on this earth, that's all we see when we see Jesus, but when we get to heaven, our seeing of Jesus will be very different, we're going to see him face to face, but he also goes on to say, now I know in part, speaking of the now here in this life, I know Jesus in part, we don't have a full grasp of Jesus like we will when we get to heaven, but then speaking of heaven, I shall know just as I am also known. It's going to be amazing the knowledge that we're able to have of Jesus when we're with him for eternity. And so with these two illustrations, Paul is clearly revealing that spiritual gifts will only cease When we get to heaven, because the only place we're going to see Jesus face to face and know just like we are known is heaven. There's there's no other thing in biblical scripture that that speaks of those things except for a heaven. And so it seems very clear that is what Paul is referring to, not uh, the completion of the New Testament. Now, Paul's main point in these verses is to show ultimately just the superiority of love. He, He wants us to recognize love is superior to spiritual gifts. Why? Because spiritual gifts are temporary. They're only for this time. Whereas love is eternal, it's not only for our life here, but also for eternity in heaven. Now, don't miss what Paul is saying in these verses. He's not telling us we don't need spiritual gifts, which is what people have concluded. He's saying we do need spiritual gifts, especially in this life. We're just not going to need them in heaven. They're essential for us here on earth, and we need to take advantage of them, and we need to use them with love, but we're not going to need them anymore in heaven. Paul concludes by saying in verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul wants us to understand faith is great. Hope is great. Spiritual gifts are great. They're all wonderful. They're all essential. They're all important. But there's something even greater than those great things. The greatest is love. Love's greater than them all. And because of that, we need to recognize we should be pursuing it. We need to recognize it has to be connected with spiritual gifts or they're not going to be used the way they're supposed to. So the sixth vital principle about spiritual gifts focuses on love and using spiritual gifts. Without love, our spiritual gifts are nothing and will profit nothing. So love must be used with each gift and pursued more than spiritual gifts. This is why love is the most vital of these eight principles. You remove this, you miss it all. This is the essential thing, the kind of the glue that holds all the other principles together. You know, this is the most important principle of all that we would have love in every spiritual gift that God has given us to use. And that's why we need to compare our life with the description that Paul has given us of what love is and what love isn't, so that we can grow in love, so that we can be using it as we seek to exercise spiritual gifts, but also in every area, in every relationship of life, love is essential. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, basically, love God, love others. You do that, everything else comes together. That is kind of the heart of our Christian faith. So once again, here is the list of eight things that love is and eight things that love isn't. And I want you to look at it one more time because I want us to close this morning taking some time just to be quiet before the Lord in prayer. And I want you to look at that list again and just see, as hopefully you've already been evaluating your own life, where is it you need growth? Where is it you're falling short? Where is it that you need to ask God for repentance and you need to ask God for help to be more loving? And I just want to take some time to practically put this into practice in prayer and say, Lord, here, I'm struggling in this, this, and this. Please help me to grow and hopefully we'll start to see change in the coming days and weeks and months uh, as we do this. So let's just take a moment just to be quiet before the Lord uh, and just ask him to help us grow in love.